You're listening to Boston Strongcast, a place where we talk all things powerlifting, strength, and the occasional scientific nerd session. I'm your host, Kevin Can, the owner of Precision Powerlifting Systems, strength coach and competitive powerlifter in the USAPL. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get stronger together. Hey guys, this is Kevin Can with Boston Strongcast. I'm joined today with a guest from across the pond, um, Dr. Keith Davids. Um, just so a little background, um, I, I'll uh, tell you how I stumbled upon your stuff. Okay. I, uh, I, so I'm a powerlifting coach. So basically we compete, we squat, we bench, we deadlift the combination of those three, whoever gets the highest total win. Mm. Um, so I, I was at this, like, we'll call it a crossroads in my coaching career where I was starting to kind of doubt the way that I was doing things and like. I started um, searching for research on like variation and obviously there's not a lot in the actual sport of powerlifting. It's an amateur sport trying to get into the Olympics. So there's not a lot of money thrown into that research. Mm. So I stumbled across uh, this article that said something about like dynamic systems theory and skill acquisition or something. I don't remember the actual specific article, but I, um, I copied it and I have a group of, um, smarter people than me that I network with to have some of these conversations. So I was like, Hey, have you guys heard of this before? And one of them came back and was like, Oh yeah. Like I've read some of those articles and stuff. You should get this book. So this book titled dynamics of skill acquisition, a constraints led approach, which was co-authored by yourself and some of your, and some of your colleagues. Um, So I ordered that. I got the non-linear pedagogy, um, the introduction book there. And I've probably read the dynamics of skill acquisition book three times. Oh, wow. So it was like literally something that at the time that I was like, this is exactly what I'm looking for. So I've, uh, at the time I had a pretty well-known coach out of Russia who used a lot of variations for, um, like fixing technical errors and improving performance and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I was kind of doing the same thing. So when I stumbled upon your stuff, uh, it was basically exactly what I was looking for and just kind of gave me guidance on how to use the variations and stuff. And ever since then, mm. uh, we've been running a constraints led approach. And we'll get into like the psychological factors of stuff because that was my biggest draw um, to the whole thing. But to start off, let's, uh, I'd like you just to give a little background on yourself, like, and even maybe go into why you chose going down a theoretical rabbit hole as opposed to doing more like physiological stuff? Yeah, that, that one's straightforward, Kevin. Um, I, uh, I trained, uh, so I'm from London. I grew up in London and um, I loved sport as a kid. Um, and it was back in the day when technology was uh, not, uh, not the highest level in terms of entertainment. So kids had to... Um, entertained themselves and so there was a lot of uh, uh, playing in parks and on the streets and uh, and the easiest thing to do was to kick a football around and football it's uh, soccer uh, as you'd call it in the states is very very strong in in the UK and I got into that in a big way and at school level I, I played in a decent team and at one time I fancied my chances to um, you know to make a, a, a bit of a living out of a, um, the game. And I practiced and practiced and practiced and I just hit this plateau and didn't go any further. And 
realised <laughs> I was it was going to cost me actually to um, carry on playing, but I was happy to to do that. But I was never going to make a living out of it. Um, and so for me, the next best thing was to make a living out of uh, teaching, coaching, and working in sport. And as soon as I got into training for that, so I went to um, St Mary's College, as it was in Twickenham, Strawberry Hill, Twickenham. It's now St Mary's University. As soon as I started training as a PE teacher then back then in the 70s, I really enjoyed the theory. I really realised how interesting it was and uh, the background to it. And so that pretty much set me on the path. Um, and I just got into the theory. Um, and I strongly believe now um, that uh, to be a good practitioner, typically you need to have a good understanding of theory. And I think your story was interesting because I've heard this from so many other practitioners, coaches, trainers, etc. that they reach a bit of a sort of a plateau, uh, a, a, a sort of a crossroads, as you said. And then from there, they need something else that can guide their work. And so, yeah, that, that's, that, that's led me to that um, role, if you like, in life, which I really enjoy. Yeah. Um, one of the... So in the sport that, you know, I coaching, it's, it's unique in some ways, right? Because I'm, I'm there in practice and their strength and conditioning and their competition. So unlike, you know, I, I played soccer through college. So like in soccer, in college, we had strength and conditioning coaches. We had a separate medical staff. We had a separate actual sport coaching staff. Mm. Um, I'm all of those things with my group, which is kind of cool. Cause you're, you're with them for such a, um, you get to know them extremely well because of the amount of time that you spend with them. Yeah. And one of the things that really drew me, um, you know, is we, we get stuck in measuring the physical because it's extremely easy and we're capable of doing it. But we, yeah. we, we forget about the human piece of it and those psychological components. Mm-hmm. And I, I was fortunate enough to have a conversation with, um, so this lifter, his name is Vincentello. He was actually the first power lifter to deadlift over 800 pounds and under 200 pounds body weight. Wow. And, and in this conversation, he was telling me that he, he believes that the mental far exceeds the physical in the sport of powerlifting. Like the body is not capable of lifting the weights, which the mind doesn't allow itself to see itself mm. doing. Mm. And um, I'd, I'd like you to kind of go into the role that – um, you know, maybe give some background on like the constraints that approach and, um, you know, Newell's work and then maybe yeah. talk about those like psychological factors and stuff. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and actually I think that uh, question is an interesting one and it reflects the, uh, Russian influence that you mentioned before, um, in terms of your coaching and, and development in, in the sport, because, um, there's some bit, this piece of very, uh, there's been some outstanding, uh, Russian sports science work that unfortunately has not been uh, translated into English or rarely gets translated into English. Um, and probably the biggest influence for me uh, is the, uh, the work of a Russian physiologist called Nikolai Bernstein. So Bernstein had his, uh, he worked in uh, the Soviet Russia um, in, in the 1930s. And uh, his work was translated into the English language in 1967. So you'll, a lot of people will see these ideas. 
um, referenced as Bernstein 1967. But we've got to keep in mind that this guy was actually promoting these um, really outstandingly innovative ideas, almost futuristic in the 1930s. Um, and what Bernstein was, um, he, he actually set the ground up, uh, the ground um, for uh, an understanding of constraints. He, he essentially was responsible for helping to refocus movement scientists uh, away from the problem of motor control which had a sort of a computer metaphor behind it that you that you have this sort of control system in the brain or mind and that controls the body which is enslaved to it very much like a computer software and hardware that relationship but he but what Bernstein did was actually to refocus us on the importance of movement coordination and that brings in the environment. So coordination has two dimensions to it. One is coordinating the many component parts of the body, the so-called degrees of freedom, as they are. They're the, they're the different muscles, joints, limb segments, and things like that. But, you know, you could produce the most technically wonderful coordination pattern, but it may not be coordinated with the environment. And this goes for many sports, like um, dynamic sports, like soccer, for example, is as you mentioned before. So coordination has two, two dimensions to it, and Bernstein uh, focused us on uh, both of those dimensions, and that brings us to Newell's model, which I'll, I'll, I'll break there just to give readers a, a bit of a pause and see whether you want to comment on um, anything I've said so far. Yeah, the, um, so the degrees of freedom part that Bernstein talks about. So I, I didn't realize that he was actually around in the... Uh, in the 1930s because I've seen his stuff referenced and actually my coach was the first one who actually um, highlighted some of his work, mm, mm. some of the stuff that he talks about, mm. um, when, you know, with technique being so important and stuff. And I, so I remember when, so he, here in America, we have this, this culture just, you know, it's clearly built off of commercialism and I would imagine maybe the same where you are, where so, like, yeah. where pre-training, everybody has to grab a foam roller or the next fancy device to, you know, get ready to actually perform some of these exercises and stuff. So mm. I remember when I had first started, started with, um, so his name is Boris Shako. So when I had started working with him, he had mm. told me something about like my squat depth. And I was like, Oh, what should I do before I, I trained to squat deeper. And his literal response to me was, I don't know what you're talking about. Just squat deeper. Mm -hmm. um, so then you know over time you just learn that he just gave me all these different drills that just kind of allowed me to gain more control so to speak of mm -hmm. the actual movement and I got more comfortable and like once I you know and then I started like reading the degrees of freedom stuff and how I learned degrees of freedom in school was just basically you know the addition of all the range of motion of the joints put together and it, it mm -hmm. just like it kind of lost the nervous system aspect of the um of the whole process. So this is actually something I learned later in life, which uh, mm. it, it was extremely interesting to me. Um, mm. But if, if you want to continue with the... Sure, yeah. Um, and so uh, that, that's absolutely um, right. It is a very interesting, very important aspect of life. So essentially, you can look at the body's degrees of freedom, which, as you say, um, people just think of muscles, joints, limb segments. I mentioned those, but um, absolutely right. 
it, it includes you can go you can go down to even the molecular level cellular level but you know things like neurons uh, components of the nervous system parts of the brain and that sort of thing they all form uh, part of the, the degrees of freedom of this sort of deeply integrated system and this is where we're moving towards this uh, initial issue that you're raising which is the relationship between the mind and the body now traditionally and, and when I was even when I was um, trained as a PE teacher it was pretty much dualism that, that was the model nobody told us that I had to find that out separately but essentially the notion of the mind controlling the body and the body's almost like the physical slave of the mind but um, dynamical systems theory and uh, but you know the influences from Bernstein not not perfect Bernstein's theoretical work's not perfect because he wasn't aware of of uh, you know some of the more recent conceptualization obviously but um, so essentially uh, he was focused on a much more integrated um, uh, analysis and evaluation of the body as a completely uh, as a complex system so nowadays we, we know about complex systems that are made up of made up of many many interacting parts and, and they're quite adaptive these these um these systems are quite adaptive in fact they have inherent uh self-organization tendencies that means that they have this capacity to adjust uh, and form synergies as well between parts of the um uh, the components of the of the movement system so we've got these tendencies we've got these capacities to use and exploit these degrees of freedom and that can be a wonderful part of coaching where you can almost like harness that and that means really taking a different approach in my view where you can actually focus less on a specific technical pattern being reproduced and more on being able to exploit all this sort of wonderful uh, flexibility that you've got in the form of different muscles, joints, limb segments, and nervous system components, which can provide you with really functional behaviors. By functional, I mean uh, relevant behaviors, behaviors that help you to achieve your intentions and, and your specific task goals, even as the conditions change. So the performance conditions change or the conditions change within you, i.e. fatigue or you get some sort of condition that uh, alters the way that the your... your um, your body works etc you can you can adapt to that because you've got this wonderful uh, potential to reorganize your uh, body parts your system components and adjust and find a new way of achieving the same task goal so again I'll, I'll, I'll pause there if you want to come in and comment yeah so one of the things that so when I had like first started coaching I always um, I always put the lifters like pick a comp stance and we did every variation in that, in that comp stance or comp grip. So they didn't really explore a lot. We tried to, the goal, I guess, was to try to um, perfect some technical model mm -hmm. using certain variations and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, after reading your work, I decided to abandon that model. Okay. So now we move feet around quite a bit. We move grips around quite a bit. We, mm -hmm. Um, you know, basically what I try to do as a coach is just give them a different problem to solve each day in the gym. Right, great. And we kind of go from there. And mm. what I've noticed is 
So skill acquisition, acquisition is a nonlinear process. So mm-hmm. I did before our last competition, I had this one lifter who, so we always pulled with a sumo deadlift. So feet wide, hands inside the, uh, hands inside the legs. Mm-hmm. And we're about two weeks out from the competition. And he's had a couple tough weeks with it. And then he's up to his last warm up here and can't even budget off the floor. So I called him over and I was like, Daniel, you know, when was the last time you pulled a conventional deadlift? What were your numbers and stuff? And so it was like three weeks prior, his numbers were pretty good. So I'm like, let's go back down. Let's work up with a different um, deadlift position. Let's see what's there. And he ends up hitting an all time personal best. Wow. So, you know, one of these ideas that I got with it is if there is a nonlinear process in skill acquisition, but you just don't have a strong skill toolbox. Mm. when that skill regresses, you're kind of at its mercy. Mm. But if you're flexible and adaptable to, you know, maybe the environment that we're in doesn't change as much. We're not lifting in the rain or the cold or Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a team sport. There are environmental factors that come into play, but Mm. it's more maybe your internal environmental environment is leading to some of these physiological changes and regressions or progressions in, in these skill adaptations and if you just don't have the ability to adapt and be strong at different angles it may work against you in the um in the long term and i'm wondering your thoughts on something like that in such a kind of a stable sport like powerlifting yeah i I mean i i really enjoyed what you um, said though i I think that there's so many uh really knowledgeable uh coaches around now that can articulate these ideas really well and you did that uh, in an excellent way. Um, I think at the end of the day, I've spoken to uh, practitioners in lots of different sports. So I, I just, uh, I don't uh, work just in my uh, passion, the, the sport that I'm passionate about, which is soccer and football. I, I work in lots of different sports and some of them, uh, they have more stable task environments, uh, conditions, uh, performance conditions. And they'll say, oh no, I mean, we can see how these ideas work for more dynamic sports like team games and American football or whatever, uh, basketball, but we don't think that they work as well for uh, more static sports, more static conditions or stable environments. And my, my question is always, okay, tell me what varies in your performance environment. And when you put the question that way, they'll come out with a list of things that varies. Now, agreed, in some sports, these things vary just a little bit, but the just even just a little bit of variation is um, uh, important. Uh, and you mentioned before, I think um, uh, the, the the example you gave was the variation within the individual, i.e., within the body, the mind, within the hormonal system. You've got all these different subsystems that vary. Um, it within an individual while they're performing this really extremely challenging sport, the powerlift. And that is what um, can be varied in practice as well, because that will simulate what varies in performance or in competition. And as you say, a lot of it may be to do with, um, you know, the internal uh, milieu, which is how you're feeling at any one time. And of course, if you've got this, body and, and mind, uh, mind and body deeply integrated and connected, then of course, what goes on mentally, what goes on within other subsystems, the perceptual subsystem, hormonal subsystem, etc., 
at these physiological levels, molecular levels even, that will have some effect on your ability to adapt and, and perform. So I think your strategy there is a really good strategy. And for me, one way of interpreting what you did with that performer was to use, um, use variability in the routines to cause a perturbation. And the perturbation is some sort of like disturbance, a mild disturbance, physical or mental, cognitive, the thought patterns or the beliefs, the self-limiting beliefs of that individual at a time. Just, just perturb it, just disturb it. And then they pick that up from there. And when you think about it, that's such an important um, process to go through because if there's one thing that separates out, uh, and it's many things actually, but a really important thing that separates out a top class perf- a performer is that when they come across a problem set by the conditions or their own personal um, environment, if you like, uh, internally, uh, or an opponent, they're able to adapt to problems and challenges and puzzles that those conditions and that opponent and their own state of mind, etc., poses for them at that time. And so that sort of variability, that adaptability is so important. There has to be a plan B. There has to be a plan C. Uh, And the ones that have a plan B and plan C, and of course a very strong plan A, um, they're the ones that are going to be uh, really quite successful in performance. I I like how you have the plan A, the plan B, the plan C. Um, One of the things that we were doing is, and like even – you know, and this is something I'm still learning as a coach is the way that I actually give them this information is it becomes extremely important to, to allow them to explore their, their environment, so to speak. Um, so I would write in their sheets, like for an exercise, I would put competition squats. Mm -hmm. So what I've started to do is once we get away from competition, there are no competition squats. We don't know what our competition squat or our competition bench or deadlift are going to be until we approach that competition because it's Mm going to be whatever position allows us to Mm -hmm. lift the most weight. But even those words that I put on that sheet constrain Mm -hmm. them to really explore different positions to Mm -hmm. self-organize into something that may be a little bit stronger than what they were used to in the past. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is literally just a typed word, not even something we discuss that much in the gym, but seeing the effects that that had on them. Um, So I want to pose this as a question to you is the importance of language in the exploratory model of uh, systems theory. Again, a a really good example. Uh, Let's start with this then. Um, In ecological dynamics, which is the sort of... uh, framework, the current state of the framework. The framework has evolved uh, over the last two or three decades um, and currently it's, uh, we, we call it ecological dynamics. That, that essentially refers to the relationship between the athlete, in this case the lifter, and the performance environment. That relationship is, is what governs uh, everything. Now in the ecological dynamics, practice or training is considered a search. Practice or training is search. And what, what, what are athletes searching for? Well, they're searching for a functional relationship with a performance environment. In other words, a relationship that's going to allow them to achieve their intentions and goals. And uh, if practice is a search, then the coach's role 
is to facilitate that search, not to actually um, take it over or to short circuit it, which a lot of coaches do by using language. So we're going back to the question that you posed about how to use language. Uh, if, you th- if you look at traditional models, um, it's pretty much about um, using verbal instructions, giving constant feedback, uh, corrective information, uh, sometimes even circumventing the athlete, stopping the athlete from uh, coming up with their, their own solutions. And what that leads to is come a performance um, performance day, competition day, the athlete comes across a problem, I don't know, just, just say a slippery floor, uh, the bars are slippery, lighting, something, you know, just something that can be quite simple like that, but could be devastating. Looks to the coach, looks to the coach straight away, what do I do here? What do I do? Solve the problem for me, because that's how traditionally practice and training has gone on. But, you know, from your perspective there, uh, your coaching is a little bit hands-off uh, and that that needs to be understood in quite a nuanced way because some people take that to extremes. But really what that means, uh, and this is the current formulation that we're, we're working on now, is we're, we're looking at coaches and teachers as considering themselves to be learning designers, learning designers. So what that means is that Uh, What that does is put the emphasis on the athlete as a learner. So the athlete's learning is the most important thing. And what the coach uh, or teacher does, trainer does, is to design a learning environment. So that refers to the conditions of the environment, the way that the athlete um, learns. And that, that involves very simple things like using stimulus words, key words like you're doing, prompts, nudges. Um, mentorship, guidance, but not circum- circumventing the learning process. Athlete learning can be dirty, ugly, noisy, uh, uncertain, can be challenging, difficult, and it's important for athletes to go through that process as long as they're safe. Um, and, and by that, I don't necessarily mean physical safety. I mean safe to experiments, safe to try things. They're not going to get, um, uh, you know, get a rollicking from the coach or shouted at or screamed at because they haven't um, complied with some sort of model that the coach has in their mind. Uh, but they're safe to explore and search and come up with a solution for him or her because each individual athlete is different. They have a slightly different way of solving the problem. Some of them have really quite... Um, very different ways of solving problems. And they've got to be able to explore that. And, you know, athletes and coaches haven't got a vested interest in using um, methods uh, and uh, movements that are that don't work. Uh, as, as they come across these movements, they don't work. They explore them a bit. They just adapt them a bit. They change them a bit. Uh, and they will discard the ones that don't work. It's, it's a real sort of Darwinian evolutionary approach. The ones that don't work get left behind and the ones that do work or nearly work, they'll be explored and searched. And that's the learning process. And so for me, going back to your question, any kind of method, uh, verbal method or uh, manipulation of the task environment that a coach uh, facilitates or uses should be to promote athlete learning through search, search and exploration and discovery 
of um, a solution that's going to be functional. And then you can polish it. Then the athlete works on it, refines it, and really goes to town on it. And that might look a bit different compared to you know, uh, other people in the group or other performers. Yeah, um, you know, some of the things that you're saying are kind of going through my head now. And I was just, you know, when we, um, it's funny because you'll have somebody squatting, let's say, you know, heels are around like shoulder width. And then the second you widen the stance, all of a sudden you see this massive drop in performance. Mm-hmm. And biomechanically, it just doesn't explain a 20% drop in strength doing something like that. Mm-hmm. You, you had mentioned earlier that you need to have a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C. Mm. Like in, in my head, I was just thinking, like, what, what if squatting that narrow, all of a sudden you feel some pinching in your hip? Because this pain, fatigue, performance, there's so much overlap mm. in how these things actually, like, mm. come about. Mm. So let's say you have a, this pinching in your hip, but if you go wider, it doesn't hurt. And if you mm-hmm. just don't have the skill to put that weight on the bar and do those things, you're, you're basically – you know, you went from maybe being an elite lifter to an intermediate or novice weight wise because you're experiencing pain. You just didn't have the ability to cope with a specific mm. problem that comes about in mm. the training or competition environment. Mm. Now, in the same token, when we do something like that, somebody mm. has a task constraint they get extremely frustrated. Mm. Like that's that's the one change from doing what I did before. So just getting, you know, you're like it just sets reps could always come in and complete the tasks at hand mm-hmm. but one, one of the things that I started instituting it and so for one when I was thinking well, who's the real opponent in this sport mm-hmm. and when I really like put my mind to it the real opponent you're actually battling yourself mm-hmm. and those like those fears and those those nerves about touching a weight you may have never touched before because mm-hmm. it can be intimidating to put a weight on your back that feels like a freaking Buick. Mm-hmm. So I started putting weights on the bar for all of them. So I don't use percentages. I kind of give them an RPE range type of thing, but mm-hmm. I pick a weight that I know is going to elicit an emotional response. Mm-hmm. And we talk a lot about handling the emotions and training and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you'll put them in certain variations where we measure ourselves objectively. And it's really hard sometimes to be like, Hey, I'm working on a skill that's very weak and I'm trying to build it up and stuff. So then they're dropping weight sometimes with those things. So frustration tends to be extremely high. So there's a lot of consequences, not only on the lifter, but there's a lot on me because I take the 50 odd lifters that I have and all of their emotions just kind of get thrown on me at a given time. And I'd like you to maybe explain the, importance of having having those emotions in the training environment for us we see it at competition people tend to not be nervous in competitions anymore like to be because we compete kind of in the gym we set we try to set a similar environment but i'd like you to maybe touch on those details yeah that's really important actually um the, the thing about um ideas of ecological dynamics it takes a holistic view of the individual performer uh, or learner um and that means that the cognitions, the thoughts, the, the mental side of things, the feelings, uh, the beliefs, um, the ideas, uh, the perceptions. So that means the, the way that um, 
the performer uses information, the feel of the bar, the uh, sight of the bar, um, the uh, proprioceptive information from the limbs, the legs, etc. Uh, all that perceptual information, and then of course the actions, the lifting actions and preparation for lifting, etc. They're deeply intertwined. They're deeply mixed. So cognitions, perceptions, and actions are deeply inter intermixed uh, during performance and during learning as well as you as you pointed out. So I think it's a good idea to uh, make sure that there's uh, an emotional element as well, because all of those can, uh, emotions can shape the way you perceive things. They can shape uh, your thinking, your um, uh, problem solving, your decision making. Uh, and of course, emotions like anxiety can shape your uh, physical system in terms of feeling tight or, uh, you know, relaxed, etc. cetera. Um, and I think, Trying to simulate uh, aspects of competition in uh, the practice environment is a good thing because then that you get this deeply integrated performer. So there's no uh, there's no value in separating out the physical side from the cognitive side because when you come to performance, you use the thinking, you use the perceptual information, you use the actions, and you have to. Uh, if you like, uh, experience, embrace, and exploit the emotions as well. Um, and so putting a, a learner in that situation where they're experiencing all of that is a good thing, uh, particularly it helps them in terms of their integration. Now, for me, uh, here we can, again, go back to evolutionary science because what you, what you see is that um, organisms compete. Organisms are constantly adapting uh, to the environment and to each other. So, in fact, they are co-adapting. That is um, an absolute uh, fundamental process in biological life, co-adaptation, constantly adapting. Uh, and, and that also applies to human behaviour. Co-adaptation, people have to adapt constantly to themselves, how they're feeling, their thoughts, their negative feeling, not so well or whatever. Their perceptual systems, which change with age, which change with experience, their uh, physical systems, which change all the time, um, are different. And so, you you know, athletes need to be able to co-adapt. And that would be an important role for the, for the coach to sort of continually uh, force these co-adaptation, uh, these co-adaptations based on what the athlete uh, may experience. So it's not a case of, um, if you like, putting in, maverick conditions conditions that they're um not going to experience just as just to force more and more wacky co-adaptations that's not the idea at all the idea is to focus on uh what what changes what may vary in competition what may come up and athletes need to experience that uh and and constantly um co-adapt and that way they gain the experience to perform uh, and one of the things you talked about is the mental side of things. And now we're getting, you know, gradually we're getting onto the mental side, which is a part of the question you raised right at the beginning. And for me, um, the important thing about manipulating constraints in a practice environment is that you're encouraging athlete self-regulation, self-regulation. So what that means as a learning designer, the coach as a learning designer, is that you're trying to encourage autonomy in the athlete to self-regulate. So when they get to a performance environment and they think, oh, this is not what I'm used to, 
the atmosphere is different, the humidity is different, the temperature is different, the lighting is different, or I feel different, you know, I'm wearing a new pair of gloves or boots or whatever, um, they're able to self-regulate. They don't immediately turn to the coach and look for the coach to solve the problem. If they're used to solving problems, if they're used to going from plan A to plan B to plan C, then they'll almost embrace those uh, problems and um, variations as, a, as challenges and they will, um, you know, really get into it and solve problems and um, they'll, they'll use their self-regulation. And that's quite important because in life, that's what we do. We all self-regulate. We make decisions. There's nobody going to get our life insurance sorted out or make sure that our bank details are up to date and that we keep ourselves secure online, etc. You know, very few people are, uh, are lucky enough to have people to do that for them. You know, people have to uh, organise themselves in life. And it's the same with athletes in a sport competition. I um, So with the co-adaptation piece... Mm. You know, we, we talk about the human being being an open, complex system, right? And it's not like they just spend their entire time with the team, right? Mm. It's, they, they have a family life. They have a work life. Mm. They have a social life. And mm. they're co-adapting to all of these different environments. And then they're mm. bringing the positive and the negatives of each one of those into the training environment, which can have positive and negative effects on that entire environment. And it becomes this very um, complex system, I guess. Mm. That's it. Uh, and it's interesting because somebody can have a bad day at work, right? And they come in and like their negative attitude can literally draw everybody down, but also it works in the other way. Like, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough where the majority of my lifters come in person. So somebody can be in, in a bad mood and like the group will recognize this and help pick them up at the same time. So like if they were by themselves and they didn't have that, that same you know, those same ecological dynamics in a training environment. Cause now like a lot of training is done online. So if they were by themselves, their performance on that day would be far less than, than it is with the group. And I, I, um, I think the strength of our success lies in the, in that, in like our, our group environment. I think that's, um, huge, even in an individual sport. Yeah. And, and um, so I did after after um, college. I did the whole mixed martial arts thing for a little over over ten years. Mm. So that was an individual sport. There were very um, very like similar pieces to it. Like the team was literally like, I mean, when you're doing a sport and you're getting hit in the face, like there are days <laughs> where it, it hurts a little more than others. But <laughs> the group kind of kind of gets you through it, and uh, and it it kind of forms the way I, I coach today. Um, yeah. An interesting part of that too. Uh, I'm rambling. This is kind of what I do, but That's all right. <laughs> when I when I started my very first experience doing that, I walked into this gym, and like I love competing. Like I had been competing since I was four years old. So wow. once I was out of college and like the soccer thing was kind of done, I was like, I need to find something. I was like, <laughs> so I was like, this sounds cool. I walked in and they had this little eight foot by eight foot ring. And I get in there with nothing more than a cup of mouthpiece and a pair of gloves with somebody who had four UFC fights. Mm. And I basically got the shit kicked out of me. <laughs> uh, that's, that's how you learned back then. It was like, you just kind of learned by doing it. But over time, 
Right. Mm-hmm. And like looking back, so after like reading your stuff, this kind of like clicked a lot more. Like how I developed as a fighter was formed by those experiences. Mm. Like I was kind of like, don't get me wrong. We did like certain drills and stuff, but like I knew the first thing I needed to stop getting hit in the face so much. I got really good at controlling, <laughs> at controlling distance. My footwork got really good. Yeah. I recognized I was more athletic than most of them doing it a little bit mm. quicker. So mm. it allowed me to identify my strengths, my weaknesses and kind of self-organize into mm. a certain skill set that I kind of like utilize later on. And I found that to be extremely interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things with like, with powerlifting, it's an extremely routine sport. So I love the freedom that a dynamic systems theory gives the coach Mm -hmm. because you're not bound so much by a ton of rules. And one of the things that like I'll mess around with, somebody will like wrap their wrist wraps, they'll huff their ammonia, they'll start approaching the bar and I'll stop them in their place, mm. make them un- unwrap their wrist wraps, wrap them up again and then take the lift. Nice. Sometimes in competition, like you're all ready to go, but something happens on the platform and you kind of get, exactly. you kind of get held back and uh, I'll change, I'll change their music. Mm. If you like listening to like this one music, what if your headphones die? and mm. you don't have this music or mm. like, you know, and, um, I guess part of what I try to think of in training is making these lifters battle tested mm. so that when they come to a competition, nothing's new. Mm. They've been here before. And even if something is new, they're used to dealing with a new stimulus that yeah. this isn't a big deal. Yeah. I can make these adjustments. I can deal with it. Um, maybe you could touch on that a little bit. Yeah, no, that, that, I think that's, uh, I would um, absolutely endorse that. I think that, um, uh, traditionally, uh, okay, let me, let me step back a bit. Uh, I've got a PhD student here at Sheffield Hallam University. Um, his name is Martin Rothwell. He's a mature student. He's actually a member of staff um, here at the um, university and he's doing his PhD. And Martin is a rugby league player, so that's different to rugby union, which um, listeners in America might be used to. Rugby league is a pretty traditional English sport. It's, it's similar to rugby union, but different enough. Um, and it's, uh, it's a traditional sport in the north of England. And what Martin's looking at is essentially the types of practices uh, that he observes. So he's a coach, he's a rugby league coach, he's played at a decent level. Uh, and uh, the types of practices that he observes when he goes to see professional clubs um, in the north of England, very traditional. They all look the same. And they all kind of reduce the autonomy of um, the players. So there's 13 players in each team. And they're pretty much, uh, their role is specified in a very um, detailed way. And practices are very traditional in that they're very regulated, regimented. And what he's done is he's looked at the historical um, constraints of the game. And, and, and you can trace the, the um, game back to Victorian England. And what happened there was it, was, it was the time of the Industrial Revolution. So what happened there was the, the people who lived in rural communities, they were self-sufficient. Suddenly, uh, they migrated to large cities um, and uh, they got work in um, factories and systems like that. The same process happened in um, the huge melting pot of America uh, early on when a lot of immigration uh, occurred and uh, migrants came to populate 
big cities like Chicago, New York, etc. And a lot of these people were from uh, rural backgrounds where they were very self-regulating, autonomous, and they then went to um, live in cities where they were uh, work, working in an, a factory, and that was very process-driven. And factory owners deliberately kept jobs very, very simplified because they could control labor that way. The simpler your job, the easier it is to replace you if you started getting a little bit um, uppity and started asking for a raise in wages or starting to um, become unreliable in their view, you could be replaced because it was easy to train somebody for your job. And what Martin Rothwell has done in his PhD is trace the relationship between the socio the social, cultural, historical constraints of work in societies to the socio, cultural, historical constraints uh, of the way that we organize practice in sports, the way that we design training, the way that we um, uh, train learners and, and um, newcomers in various team sports. He, he could see that link there, and he's, he's, we've written a couple of papers about it. And what, we, what we've um, uncovered there is a concept from the uh, German philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein talked about a form of life. Now, a form of life is a set of values, beliefs, attitudes. It's a whole system, a way of doing things uh, that, that you could refer to in terms of you know, skills and capacities, etc. And the form of life in, in, in the sports organization is very traditional, and you could trace it back to ways of doing things in, um, in, in industry and, and going back to the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and what we've got to do now is encourage a different form of life, a form of life that isn't one about uh, compliance and subjugation and instruction, over-reliance on that. It's really about people um, showing more autonomy, about being able to self-regulate, being able to co-adapt. So when, when they face problems uh, and issues in a, a performance environment, they're able to solve those problems themselves. The problems could come from weather conditions um, or conditions in an in a indoor area, the performance environment. It could come from themselves. Uh, it could come from an opponent. Um, it could come from, as you say, some sort of little issue that they're just not used to. And so your um, method, which is by constantly uh, uh, encouraging your athletes to self-regulate, to co-adapt with these changes, that is preparing them for what happens in, um, in the competition environment. That's the form of life that they're preparing for. And so it's really important not to have a very different form of life, which is almost sterile and manicured and very, very um, controlled and regulated because that's not the form of life that they're going to come across when it comes to the performance environment. So I know lots of coaches that do similar things like that, that are constantly setting puzzles, challenges, uh, causing perturbations, as I mentioned before, disruptions, uh, problems for their learners to solve. And the important thing about this is that really this should start from very young. Uh, I've talked to coaches who said, oh, I'd like to introduce this, but our senior players um, in a professional sports organization, I won't name any organizations or sports, but the senior players are so pampered. They've had everything done for them from very early on. They'd get upset. They won't be able to handle it and they get irritable um, but if you, if you started with that sort of form of life um, 
at a very early age, then you'll find that uh, the players will adapt. And that's what you're in. That's what you're actually the gift that you're giving them, which is their ability to constantly adapt and solve problems. And they don't have to keep turning to you to do that for them. The social and cultural, this, this just got my, my wheels spinning a little bit. So we have such, obviously like in the seventies, there was this hard, everybody wanted to know what the Russians were doing. (laughs) And you know, when I, um, so I was very fortunate enough to have a coach that came from a different culture. Cause I think it really opened my eyes to some of these like different aspects of things. Mm. And they have, so in Russia, they have these schools. So basically like powerlifting would be like a school subject. Mm. And when they're real young, like all the kids are forced to do gymnastics and explore other movement type sports. And then when they start specializing, so once they get into it, they'll touch a PVC pipe, but there's a lot of GPP, like general physical preparedness exercises mm-hmm. thrown in there. Mm-hmm. And then after a year or two of that, they'll start gradually loading the weight, but the GPP still makes up a large portion of the total volume that they're doing. Mm-hmm. And there's this progression that happens over time. Mm-hmm. Now they learn one way to basically do the lifts, but the ones who tend to not see the increases in performance, get handed a certificate and they leave the school at a certain, so they have this classification chart. So wherever you end up from a class three lifted to a master of sport and international competition, you get this certificate and you're on your way. So the ones that are left that are putting up those huge totals that we hear about in this sport are the ones that survived that training process. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I've heard a story about like Bulgarian weightlifters too, where they all tend to come from a certain region and they tend to have similar builds and stuff to them. Like we try to mimic these, these same programs and put them onto individuals. And we're so focused on the mechanical aspects of things. But I think, and like how you said, it should start earlier on in life. And this is what like literally just like made light bulbs go off in my head. Mm-hmm. It's like that happens in those countries. Yeah. They start that earlier in life. You don't hear about the ones that don't succeed doing that. You only hear yeah. about the ones that see a lot of progress. And then we take that same model in yeah. a culture with much more freedom for a, a nice little pun there, but a lot more like flexibility in our environment and our, and what we do for jobs, who we hang around with and stuff like that. And we wonder why it doesn't work the same way. That's right. Um, I don't know. That just like literally just to me that, that just, it, it makes a lot of sense and it makes a lot of sense why, if I run his, and I've done this, like, you know, he was a large influence on me, especially earlier in my career. So I did very similar things with my lifters as he was doing to me, but I didn't see the same results that he saw with his lifters on the Russian national team. Yeah. And, and I was wondering why. And like, when I, when I saw my, I, you know, mm. powerlifting is such a cool sport because you get people from all different walks of life. Mm. Um, people with strong athletic backgrounds, mm. people with zero athletic backgrounds, um, you know, and all different types of like emotional genotyping or lack mm. for lack of a better word. Mm. And it becomes an extremely fun, but challenging, um, I guess, task for the coach to be able to manipulate some of um some of those things. I don't know if you have comments on anything. I just kind of like uh, <laughs> rambled on that. 
No, no, that's really interesting. Uh, yeah, it, it does provoke some thoughts in me. Yeah, I mean, that's why, for example, you cannot just take methods from one part of the world, one form of life, and then transpose them to another form of life and assume that they're... Um, that it's, it's going to uh, lead to the same outcomes because the form of life is different. The socio-cultural expectations, the attitudes, the beliefs, uh, the historical trends, and, uh, you know, they, they, they're all different. I mean, it doesn't mean that um, there may not be some benefits if you do take some methods, but you can't just transpose them without some thought because you've got different forms of life. And that's why, for example, we've got, without stereotyping people, we've got Jamaican sprinters, we've got East African distance runners, we've got uh, New Zealand all-black rugby players, we've got um, soccer players in Europe um, and female soccer players in America, for that example, uh, for that uh, uh, example as well. Uh, we've got, you know, uh, we, we look to America for basketball, baseball, um, uh, American football. We look to certain countries for swimming. There's certain forms of life that are, have grown um, and they've got cultural traditions and historical approaches. It doesn't mean that they're always going to uh, achieve and succeed in those ways. But what it means is that there is a sort of a trend, a pattern. Um, there are beliefs, attitudes and values that are useful for people in that particular region. I think the most important thing there is to look at forms of life across the globe and, and look for variables, look for things that are uh, principles that you can uh, take from all of them that could be useful. And we've talked about some of these things, co-adaptation, about use of variability, about self-regulation, about um, promoting athlete autonomy, about coaches not over-relying on one type of method, uh, verbal instructions and verbal feedback, but using a variety of methods, etc. So, so there are some general principles that you can take from the different systems. I think another one, for example, would be that you don't necessarily have to have the most beautiful technological equipment and wonderful um, conditions for practice. As long as you've got good information, good um, systems in place, um, and you've got coaches who are innovative, athletes that are motivated, you know, you can achieve a lot. Earlier you made a point, and I remember thinking I must comment on that, I didn't get a chance to. Um, but for me, the coaches that I've come across that are most promising, that are going to be most successful, and that are most successful, are those that are looking to be innovative. Um, some coaches I've come across say things like this, they say, uh, yeah, we really like these ideas, very interesting, but I'm in a system uh, that won't allow me to use them. And so that I've come across that, and for me, that system capture, that's the system imprisoning the coaches. So the coach education programs, the manuals are all in place, and those coaches are not curious enough. They just want to do what, uh, uh, do things the way that it's been done, what does the manual say? And they treat the manual as if it's the be all and end all, all the knowledge that you're going to need. Whereas really, when you think about it, coach education is just the start of your journey. And that should encourage you to innovate, uh, to do exactly what you did. Get to a position where you go, do you know what? I'm not quite sure I know enough. I need to improve my knowledge. Uh, and of course, you, you know, you've been a smart um, 
intelligent chap who's able to evaluate what you read because there's a lot of stuff out there that's not relevant, not as relevant and useful. Um, so you've got to be crit critical in your appreciation of ideas and theories and science and even practical knowledge that you can take the practical knowledge from a form of life and say, no, we can't ch transpose that, but this little gem here, we can take that over. So for me, the best coaches are the best learners and the best athletes are the best learners. You encourage and facilitate learning um, in, in the whole, uh, if that's a, a basic principle of your form of life, that's one of the best things that you can do. Constantly learning, constantly adapting, constantly developing. And as I said, it's got to start from a very young age. I remember uh, Shaco had told me that once a coach stops learning, it's when he should quit coaching the uh, coaching the sport. And I, I, t I took that to, to heart when he, um, when he told me that. Mm -hmm. So after reading your stuff, I got into like, I have a, um, a knack of finding these like rabbit holes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was reading some like chaos theory and complex theory mm -hmm. papers and books and stuff. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I found really interesting was that all complex systems follow this, like it seems to be for the most part, follow this power law relationship. So we're extremely terrible at um, predicting outcomes, but there seems to be a, um, a relationship between like small avalanches and large avalanches is kind of how they were um, explained when I read, when I read them. And um, so my understanding of this, and I'm by no means a neuroscience um, student, but is that these avalanches are basically like clusters of neurons that get lit up based off of an input and the avalanche stops when a neuron runs into a neuron from a previous avalanche and that all these causes of, and so the, this is, my guess is this would tie to attractor states mm. is that when the, so small and large avalanches are caused by the same exact inputs. It's just a matter of how it happens that given time and it'll follow this proportionate, um, this proportionate relationship. So in a sport like powerlifting, mm we may train for six months and see an increase of five pounds on one of our lifts, or we may see it stay the same, or we may see it go down, or we also may see this massive explosion of, um, of strength. And mm. my, my guess is this is just maybe just this, because you said how we're always adapting. So maybe there's just this self-organization calibration process that just mm. kind of happens based off of those, you know, maybe it's the co-adaptation of all the people you're around on a day-to-day -day basis, your internal environment, whether it's core temperature, energy needs. Yeah. Um, so like there's just this constant adapting and calibration that's, that's occurring mm -hmm. that I think people have a very hard time understanding that it's kind of the natural ebbs and flows of life in general, not even just objectively measured sports. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe you could touch on that if I'm or if I'm yeah. way off this kind of no, no I think I think again some very good observations there I mean essentially what you talked about the the, the notion that there is uh, not an uh, there's not a linear relationship between input and output so you know remember at the beginning when I when I talked about how I uh, wanted to try and make it as a football player and I practice and practice and practice and practice and you know so my input was technically and training-wise, really quite high, but the output, what I got from that, it just stagnated. Um, 
and I didn't realise then, but you know, this is just uh, me running into um, my life as a non-linear dynamical system. Um, you know, for some people, a small input can lead to a major transition at one time, as you said, you gave some you know, good examples there. For other people, you could have a big, large input and, it, and you won't get a, a, you know, like a very large transition or change at all. Uh, and what that means, essentially, from a practical perspective, is that uh, what, as a coach and as an athlete, you should expect to see lots of variability day to day. Lots of variability in the sense of um, not always positive variability, you know, up and down and stuff like that. But what you're really interested in is not the day-to-day, but the long-term trend. And this is the thing about a dynamical system. You'll get variability in the trajectory when you look at it over the short-term and medium-term. But what you're interested in is a long-term trend. Where's the system going? Uh, And that's what you're after. Um, And so... Coaches don't understand that. Athletes don't understand that. This is where they need that sort of psychological support and social support that you mentioned before, because they could be ups and downs. They could be, you could really put in some big shifts and get working hard, go to a competition and stagnate and it won't go well. Uh, And it's important not to let that get you down, uh, but to keep on going and take it as a learning process because you know, as I said, what I call the microstructure of practice, what you do day in, day out, uh, hour by hour, week week by week, um, it, it really, you get variability there. But what, what you're interested in is the long-term uh, trajectory of the system, and that is, is that you are learning. And, you, and it will be messy, noisy, dirty. Um, and sometimes the best learning comes when you're, you're feeling uncomfortable, when you're, when you're really out of your comfort zone. Um, when you're surrounded by uncertainty, uh, but as long as you feel safe to explore, practice, try things and adapt. And life's journey isn't always straightforward. It's, it's, it mirrors, sport mirrors uh, real life. You know, you have good days, you have bad days, you have good weeks, you have bad weeks. Sometimes you have bad years, you have good years. Um, and the important trick, the trick is to make sure that the good years, the good times outweigh the bad times and try to learn so that you minimise the effects of those um, bad times, or the or, or the bad times meaning where you don't learn, you you know you don't move forward as, as much as you want to. I don't know whether that um, uh, made contact with what you were trying to uh, talk about then. Yeah, no, one hundred percent. It's funny. So this last little over a year, I haven't seen any progress on any of my any of my three lifts. But in this same period of time. The rate in which I've learned as a coach has been exponentially greater than any other period of time that I've had as a coach. Um, And I think for one, like as an athlete myself, like it just, it makes you learn to appreciate the other things in the sport other than just adding weight on the bar, like having fun with the group training, doing certain things, exploring different um, aspects of the sport. One of the, um, so we talk about like my group, I make it a big point. To, so we even have like, we have an app with a research tab and like we talk about all of, all of these things. Cause I think it's important to educate them the same way so that they understand why they're doing the things that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my lifters had shared this article. It's, it's about the stock market, um, you know, which is a dynamical system in and of itself here in America. 
Mm-hmm. And it was comparing uh, the stock market to a lady walking her dog in the park. Mm-hmm. The lady is the long-term trends. She's walking in a straight line, going from point A to point B. But the dog is the day-to-day. It's going <laughs> forward, sideways, backwards, pissing, pissing on itself at times. But they both end up in the same place at the end of the day. And I think it's a, a fantastic analogy to... Um, to kind of deal with those aspects. But, you know, it's, it's funny too that my lifters, and I think this is just human behavior in general. So mm-hmm. I give them a ton of freedom to make decisions because I think it's extremely important to have a very high training skill because of those day-to-day changes. They need to be able to assess those changes themselves and be able to make the adjustments to get the most out of training on that given day, whether it's to put the metal to the put the pedal to the metal or to really pull back on a given day and go lighter. They need to be able to assess that and make, and um, make those decisions. But they'll, when it's time to put a certain weight on the bar, they'll be like, Oh, well last week I hit this next week. I want to hit this. So I'm going to put this weight on the bar. They have this amazing ability to not live in the moment then. And then they'll put a given weight on the bar and then they'll miss the lift or it'll feel like shit or something like that. And then they have that ability to, wallow in that and live in the moment in that exact <laughs> spot and it's like i just i need you guys to reverse that mm-hmm. like live in, live in the moment when you need to make a decision mm-hmm. and then take a step back and look at the bigger picture later on mm-hmm. and like things will be fine but it, it's funny that like it just tends to be the reverse and that's the biggest learning curve i think in a sport that isn't don't get me wrong i think squatting over 700 pounds is an extremely skilled movement Mm. Um, just learning how to do a squat, I think is not as skilled, but mm. you know, the, I think the true skill in this sport is learning to pay attention to your internal environment and make those decisions and live in the moment when you have to, but understand that it's part of a much larger picture over the, over the long haul. And yeah, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an extremely interesting sport from, from uh, those concepts. And if you have any tips on how to train people to be able to see those things, that would be. uh, Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you captured it quite nicely that learning is a journey. I mean, it's cliche in some respects, but it's so true. It's a journey. It's a process and we shouldn't get too hung up on the outcomes, Uh, you know, too high when we do something that's really positive and, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the right direction, but equally not too low uh, when uh, things don't go to plan, etc. because we're not machines. We are uh, human, uh, pe- you know, we're people. We're, we, we're, we've got um, uh, like a, a milieu, if you like, and, uh, you know, an internal environment uh, that's constantly changing, an external environment that's constantly changing. In fact, the wonder is that we're able to produce consistent performance and behaviours um, you know, and learn these skills and so well, but we are not machines. We just don't, we can't just sort of repeat these things um, in an automated way. We, uh, we you know, we, we, we have to adapt. Uh, so I think a, a responsible coach is one that, um, you know, recognizes each athlete as an individual, uh, maybe understands what they're going through uh, and essentially support, is there to support them and help them in their in their journey. You know the the process of learning, which is to search and come up with a solution. They also need to understand, of course, that some athletes are not as good as uh, 
exploring and searching and discovering when they're confronted with unfamiliar uh, situation circumstances novel stimuli some can freak out some are a little bit irritated others embrace it and absolutely love it they love the challenge and we're all different in that way but my belief is certainly if um from very young if that is part of the culture the the the, the sort of social uh, form of like it form of life if you like at a uh, performance environment, then people will embrace it. They'll learn to um, uh, use it to their to their uh, you know their capacity and enjoy it. Enjoy the challenges and uh, uh, things like that. We shouldn't expect athletes, obviously, to want to be challenged every day of their life. I mean, it's important to sometimes give cut them some slack, and sometimes they just want to do what they've done before and that sort of thing. So yeah. Um, it's about treating them as individuals, understanding their ups and downs. But as long as over the long term, the system is like the lady in the park, uh, heading from A to B, uh, whatever, wherever B is for that athlete. Um, and yeah, yeah the, the weekly stuff, the daily stuff will be like the dog stopping and starting and uh, going backwards and wanting to go in a different direction and all this sort of stuff. Good analogy. <laughs> um. So that, that those are all the questions that I had. Do you think there's anything that I missed that you that you'd like um, to? Add? Uh, there was there was one thing that I just thought I'd like to talk about, but I can't. Uh, it just escaped my mind uh, at the moment. But no, I think that um, I like I like your ideas. I like a lot what you're doing. Um, you're giving giving them responsibility. You're really enjoying your role as a coach, which is a mentor, a guide, supporter. Of course, there will be some times when you will need to go in, use verbal instructions, give some feedback because they want that. Um, but I think coaches too much just dive into that. They think that's the only way of coaching. Uh, and that's why we've, we've sort of reconceptualized their role as a, as a learning designer because the emphasis is then on the learner, the learning process and coaches and teachers supporting the learner, uh, you know, the learning journey, as it were. One of the uh, one of the things that I think about before I say something to. So in the beginning, I'll give a lot of a lot more like verbal and not verbal instructions, but I'll be like, this is kind of what I'm looking for in the lifts, and then I'll mm-hmm. put them in the positions to kind of like explore those things, and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll kind of keep my. Um, my mouth shut from there. But one of the things that I really think about is if I'm going to say something is what I'm saying about me or is this really going to be about them? Because yeah, I think yeah. as coaches, it's hard to separate the two at times because it's, yeah. it's, Hey, look at me, look at what I, what I know. And I don't think it's a conscious like ego thing, but it's a, there's definitely some subconscious um, pieces to that, if you will. Yeah. And, and Athletes and people, actually, people can do this to leaders. They, they can do this to people they admire, they look up to, people uh, they aspire to, you know, have your knowledge, your understanding, your your um, powers of empathy and uh, that sort of thing. And, and that's a normal situation, but I think that is, it's, you need to be humble as a coach, and you sound very humble as a coach, someone who's prepared to step back and put the athlete uh, in the middle of it. And so I think that's a very good... Um, strategy there is to say is, is this about me is this really about showing what i know or is is this about the learner is this what the learner needs and uh that's a really big step i think if you get that right 
and you're you know you're really on your way to um, uh, being a really good learning designer. <laughs> the um, uh, I think once I started getting into the more like chaos and complex theory stuff, I just realized that. I literally know absolutely nothing. So I should keep my mouth shut unless like, I know that this is actually going to, uh, to help out my, uh, my lifters and stuff. Um, so I'd like to wrap, wrap things up kind of by asking you where your research is currently and what your, you know, maybe what questions you're looking to answer in the future. If you have any other, you know, resources that, Yes, yes, yeah. Good, good, uh, good question. Uh, yeah, at the moment, I'm really interested in the um, relationship between specificity of training and athlete enrichment. Okay, let me let me unpack that. What I mean is, we all know about specificity of training, specificity of practice. It's a very important principle. Uh, but my feeling now is that uh, my perception of uh, going around and seeing what's going on in different sports is that some sports are taking this too far um, the early specialization model um, some sports are thinking well you know we, we we have identified this young four-year-old this five-year-old as a footballer a soccer player therefore we are going to you know um, they, they say the child as a soccer player and they will start training physical practice and, and that, you know, scale to the four-year-old, five-year-old, etc. I understand that, but it's still one dimensional. Um, and specificity of training is important, but it's important at the right time for the right reasons. Athlete enrichment is important because um, it's important that, that to first of all work on the, athlete so that they come in and they're quite athletic um, learners they, they they've almost got this very good platform this power base they're empowered as athletes and then they can specialize if you specialize too early we know that there's physical problems we know that there's psychological emotional social problems a lot of good stuff coming out from north america that covers that uh, those issues and still the early specialization model um, is cranking up and there's some very good examples I'm sorry not good examples but some bad practice examples if you like of early specialization where they're going younger and younger uh, and this talk of training babies to become trying to identify babies and then training very young infants to, to be say you know one type of athlete rather than first f- focusing on the child what the child needs the fun, enjoyment, the joy of moving, of the variety of things, um, then the athlete. So that's when you start to focus on um, athletic skills, perceptual skills, cognitions, dealing with uh, being able to you know, play and be physically active when you're not feeling too good, etc. And then, of course, it's the specialist after that. So I think um, that's what I'm really interested in. And so what that means is, is that we should spend a good amount of time on enriching athletes so that we're almost like um, turbocharging them, empowering them, so that when they come to the specialist arena to be a powerlifter, an ice climber, a swimmer, a gymnast, uh, whatever you like, a football player, they can really 
make the most of the specialist training that's given to them at that time. I think in the in the in the past decades, I'm seeing some some revision of this now, but in the past decades, uh, sports organisations have, ma- have made the big mistake of thinking that the way to um, the way to get the next future generation of top talented players is to identify them younger as footballers or climbers or swimmers and then specialise very, very early on. And so I'm really interested in uh, rebalancing that in sport. I, uh, I love hearing that. And like from a personal perspective, soccer made me a much better fighter. Like I was, I was hard to be – it was hard to hit me. I reacted to opponents extremely well, whether it's like with my offense or my defense. And mm. I caught on really quick because I had this like much higher skill set. Mm. I was reading. So there's a, um, there's a American football players names. Drew Brees is a big time quarterback. He'll be in the mm. hall of fame by the time he retires. And he mm. was talking his biggest, what he, you know, they asked him what he equates to his success. And he said when he was younger playing tennis mm-hmm. and he gave this rationale on, you know, seeing the ball, hitting it back and like the precision of being able to put it into certain places. It made sense to him, like reading it, it was hard for me to conceptualize the idea, but mm-hmm. he's even viewing a sport that I wouldn't even think had carry over to American football as being one of the biggest drivers of it. And there's a lot of, um, big time coaches here mm. who are like in division one college football where they won't recruit kids that only played one sport because they tend to not be as good at those higher levels when the environment is much more elite and they're required to have to think faster, to react mm. faster, to mm. have a uh, different skill set. So it's, um, it, it's, it's a very interesting, interesting topic. And, I think we're more aware of it here in a, in America with the early specialization. Mm. Uh, but even then, you know, you get all that good research and all it takes. So we have a golfer, Tiger Woods, who yeah. at five years old started golfing and then he goes on to the great success that he had in the PGA tour. And then that's all it takes for every five year old. <laughs> that's right. That's the example, the model that everybody follows. Um, but, but the thing is this, as you say, there's loads of other examples. Um, of people who played lots of different sports. So, for example, if you go to tennis, there's uh, Djokovic who played. He did a lot of skiing and uh, um, snowboarding. That that sort of those balancing activities. Federer, uh, he played a lot of different sports as well when he was younger. There's the um, MLS footballers, Latan Ibrahimovic, the Swede, uh, and he did martial arts. You know, you were talking before about your martial arts background, and you could see shots of. Uh, Zlatan getting his uh, head, uh, his, his foot right in the air above opponents and into those sort of martial arts kicking positions. And he's able to transfer that to his, his football skills. I remember you mentioned in, in, in a comment at the beginning of this podcast where you talked about your footwork, how you learned to stop getting hit in the face because, by using your footwork. Footwork's a very important part of um, soccer, of course, as an attacker and a defender as well. So I think your point's... Um, well made, uh, and that's certainly um, what I'm interested in: is how we can design enrichment programs so that we can really tap into the fundamental movement skills, foundational movement skills that that people need, not just to become elite athletes. This is a societal issue. This is really, well, you know, I I think I talk sometimes talk about the coming storm. 
which is um, the talent pool shrinking, the talent pool in sport shrinking because uh, the next generation of kids, a lot of them haven't had the same experiences. I, re- I remember at the beginning of this podcast, I talked about growing up in London and uh, the technology wasn't around. So we entertained ourselves by playing out in parks and streets and having fun uh, with footballs and playing lots of different uh, sports-like activities. That, that experience isn't happening for, for a lot of modern kids. Um, and so it means the talent pool shrinking, but equally it means that kids aren't develop, developing the foundational movement skills that will allow them to lead a, a, physical, a physically active lifestyle so that they can avoid some of these diseases uh, that are going around because people are just not being active enough. Later on, when they want to learn a sport, they haven't got those foundational skills. They can injure themselves and suddenly go, oh, do you know what? Sport's not for me. Uh, I was obviously one of those uh, couch potatoes and never designed for sport. But that's not true. Um, it's just about being able to understand that you can learn and relearn uh, movement patterns, um, even at a late stage in life. You may not be an elite athlete, but you can lead a physically active um, lifestyle that will help you to um, you know, remain healthy funny that you mentioned that because then that ties into the cultural beliefs that aging comes with just feeling like shit and being achy and yes. you know, maybe now I'm too old to learn this and then we have the cultural beliefs of how aging is supposed to look and how it uh how yeah. it turns out exactly uh, that, that, sorry that's the just one point there is that that's that's right the socio-cultural attitudes uh, historical attitudes about older people to be um seen but not heard i.e and normally seen sitting down somewhere and uh, inactive uh but now the, you know there are some good examples some good role models out there of older people who challenge themselves still appropriately scaled for their capacities their uh, aging capacities but still not accepting uh stereotype um a stereotype view of an older person as being inactive and uh, just hanging around uh waiting <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> uh, so are there any places that the listeners could contact you with questions if they ever, if they had any, um, sure. do you post on social media much or? No, no, I'm, I, I, I don't go on social media much, but, uh, I, uh, I can give you my email address and then, uh, listeners can contact uh, you for the email address and get in touch with me and I can, uh, send reading. Uh, I could, uh, you know, provide, uh, support, um, as much as I can, because it's life is busy at the moment. There's a there's a lot going on, but uh, I'm certainly open to being contacted for advice, etc. Perfect. I I greatly appreciate that. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to chat chat with me about this stuff. Um, I, I I really enjoyed this one. Oh, good, and I've enjoyed it as well. I always enjoy talking to modern contemporary practitioners who are open minded. Uh, you know, and you you exemplify that you. You know, you, your, um, your, your questions, your comments, really well informed. Uh, and, you know, it comes across loud and clear that you are a learner, that you're learning and, uh, you know, you're going to carry on improving. So, um, yeah, you know, keep up the good work. I, I appreciate hearing that because in, a, uh, in this day and age, being open-minded tends to come with a lot of negative feedback mm-hmm. at times. Um, but at the end of the day, a ton of fun doing what we do and uh that's it i wouldn't change it for the world yeah me too me too i'm enjoying it as well so let's keep on doing it
Yeah, absolutely. Guys, you can follow me on Instagram. It's KWCAN, our team, Precision Power Lifting Systems. Stay strong, Boston.